listening to the Religion and Socialism podcast, a production of the Religion and Socialism Commission of the Democratic Socialists of America. Find us on the web at religioussocialism.org. On episode one, David Reed interviews social ethicist and theologian Gary Dorian. Professor Dorian is the Reinhold Niebuhr Professor of Social Ethics at Union Theological Seminary and Professor of Religion at Columbia University. He's the author of 16 books and numerous articles that range across the fields of ethics, social theory, theology, philosophy, politics, and history. He's been described as the preeminent social ethicist in North America today and the most rigorous theological historian of our time. He's also an ordained Episcopal priest. Professor Dorian was an early member of Michael Harrington's Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, DSOC, which was one of the founding organizations for today's DSA. Issues of racial justice in the United States have been compelling for Professor Dorian throughout his career. In his most recent book is The New Abolition, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel, the first in a two-volume history on the social gospel movement in black faith communities. David began by asking Professor Dorian about his own personal roots regarding the connection between faith and socialism. When did you come to the realization that religion, I guess in your, in your case, Christianity and socialism are compatible? How did, how did that come about? Because I've been trying to even think in my own life how that came about. And I'm just curious what your, your thoughts are. Well, I grew up poor and rural in the middle of Michigan uh, and uh, without much of a religious background. I mean, it was nominally Catholic, but very nominal. Um, so I didn't have much understanding at all about of theology or anything of that sort. Um, I think the first thing in my life that even sort of breaks through this very lower class rural trailer parkish world that I lived in was the Civil Rights Movement. I came of age during the latter years of the Civil Rights Movement. So King was this uh, arresting, just extremely compelling uh, figure for me who to broke through this world I grew up in like like nobody else, like nothing else. Um, so I've always said uh, um, that King is the most important both intellectual and, influ- and religious influence uh, in my life. Even just representing that Christianity could look like that, mm-hmm. you know, sort of representing it. Uh, and this is a few years before I met Mike Harrington and even knew his stories about, yeah. you know, who King really was uh, and so on. Uh, but that was the first thing, uh, was just having that uh, in my life when I was in junior high and then high school. And of course, I was in high school when King was assassinated. And so he went from being just the leader of a great political movement to being something like a Christ figure, you know, the one who died for us. Uh, and that's to the extent that I had anything like a religious worldview coming into college, that's, that was it. I mean, that was the, what it was uh, based upon. And to this day, that, that's still my touchstone. So um, from, from that, yeah, that whole, which is now, you know, given birth to these big books on the black social gospel I'm doing now, to some degree I've kind of, it's taken me th- this long to even get to explicating how I even, you know, got started and what, um, went into it. But aside from that uh, kind of um, background and whatever I'm drawing out of my very nominal 
uh, Catholic background, which means that I do have some kind of, there's some something of a Catholic sensibility there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just go to Mass, and especially for me, I think, uh, contemplating the figure on the cross, the idea of a of uh, the God suffering for you, among you, that that came through to me in a way um, that didn't have any kind of theology yeah. attached to it, but um, had something to do with what it is that made King so mesmerizing um, to me and helped give me whatever bearings I had for what Christianity uh, might be heading into college. Um, I was lucky to go to college having grown up poor and rural and not knowing anybody who talked about going to college or having something called a career, but fortunately I was a jock and played sports year-round, and so I did pass these courses in high school that made me barely eligible to go to college, uh, and then I've got that in mind to, you know, play sports in college, just like my friends. Uh, so that's what got me into college. And sophomore year, I read a book called Christianity and the Social Crisis by Walter Rauschenbusch, and it did have just a tremendous uh, impact on me. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought, this is what Christianity should sound like. Uh, both, the, both the liberal theology that was in that book and also the radical, in his case even socialist, uh, politics uh, were there. It came together, it made an argument. I mean, there's an immediately a question about this is, well, if this is possible, if this, if the way that he's talking about Christianity uh, that actually makes sense as some kind of radical democratic socialism uh, that's based on the cross, uh, and that I've and that I've already seen something of an example of that by virtue of idolizing King all these years. Uh, if if that's the case, then it does raise the immediate question: Well, then why doesn't most of Christianity look like that? And why is this even surprising that that it could take this form? And fortunately for me, Rauschenbusch spent half of that book trying to explain that very thing, mm -hmm. because the the very the novelty of the social gospel was it was a major stumbling block. Uh, if you're right, then how is it that most of Christianity doesn't sound like this, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Rauschenbusch took that on. In fact, it's the key to his own career about why he taught church history uh, for so many years, and he had an argument about. You know, the kingdom of God is manifold. It's got these six sort of pieces to it. And, uh, but it's, the, the key to understanding church history is that uh, one part of church history or another, depending on which one you're looking at, uh, the church uh, is never able to lay hold of, to be true to uh, the fullness of what it means to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, it kind of drains out that prophetic what he calls the beating heart of the Hebrew scripture that is in the New Testament, that gets drained out uh, and it gets turned into some kind of otherworldly something uh, that is kind of a betrayal of the gospel. So uh, teasing out that argument is, is, is um, with the detail and the polemical force, but also the tremendous spiritual force uh, that was in that book. Um, made a sizable imprint on me. I mean, it was uh, nothing else. Nothing else has ever compared uh, to those two influences uh, in my life, to King and to uh, Rauschenbusch. So I came out of college thinking, knowing that um, that those two influences were going to drive me. That that, that my life was going to be something about sort of living out what it meant to be claimed. 
um, by the, the sort of Christian socialist worldview that was there uh, in these two figures. Um, and then very near the end of my um, college experience, I wrote a mass, I wrote a thesis. I, read, I had three majors at college, and I wrote one of them on neo-Marxist social theory. And my sociologist, uh, sociology teacher, Dave Lemon, had become a friend by then. Uh, and he reads this thesis I wrote, and he says, God, this sounds so much like Michael Harrington. He says, you know, has Harrington influenced you? said, no, I've never heard of Michael Harrington, right? <laughs> but I went to the library, and uh, he had five books out at that point, and I read all five of them uh, in the next two and a half weeks, and I found a political lodestar. I mean, I thought, yeah. yes, indeed, uh, Harrington lines up uh, with what makes sense to be to me. I mean, a sort of democratic socialist sort of politics and sort of an argument about how the ethical and the political uh, should come together, that whole argument about um, but if, demo if democracy is the sort of test of what is a legitimate authority in the political sphere, that should apply uh, in other spheres as well, that idea of a kind of a democratizing spirit. Um, so that put me on the mic just at the very end of my uh, mm -hmm. college experience. Uh, and the next fall I was at Harvard where, you know, Mike showed up uh, within a couple of months because he's now on the road uh, with a roadshow advertising we just created this new organization called DSOC. So I'm not quite a founder of DSOC. Enough, right? I, I wasn't yeah. among that whatever 200 people in that CD room uh, that uh, founded DSOC, but I, you know, I came into it just a few months later. So I'm actually curious then, how would you define religious socialism? I mean, you said, you said something about Harrington showed you the political and the ethical all coming together. So is religious socialism, the political, the ethical, and the religious coming together, or is it? Well, I had I had such a concrete example of it in my own sort of study in my work, which has ended up being something that's central to, uh, you know, my my academic work, and that's the social gospel movement. Okay. Um, I mean, when I went to school, uh, and then out later to seminary, yes, the social gospel is something you sneer at. Right, that uh, people, if you know anything about it, you know three or four cliches that Reinhold Niebuhr put into the field about how it was sentimental and moralistic and idealistic, and it's it's sort of middle class sentimentality applied to religion, and and uh, you know so and so all that had been discredited, and this was something you made fun of, with maybe with the exception of Rauschenbusch. I mean, if you if any of these social gospelers from the 1880s to the 1930s get into a seminary curriculum, it's it's maybe one, you know, yeah. piece of that big book that I referred to, or or one of his uh, other ones. Uh, and even when Niebuhr was pressed on this question, he'd say, "Well, you know, Rauschenbusch is a half exception to this slew of cliches I'm about to throw at you, because indeed he did, he uh, he did put out a lot of, about this that was pretty much putting it down, such that you get a whole generation or two of people who just don't even see this." the radical social gospel spirit that's in Niebuhr yeah. uh, because he uh, so powerfully sort of ridiculed the sentimentality and the moral idealism and the rationalism and then later the pacifism uh, that did constitute so much of the social gospel movement of the 30s. So I'm not saying, and I never have said, that all of that isn't true. Uh, mm -hmm. It was. Um, but something terribly important was lost uh, in losing the social gospel 
Um, and that's, that even helps to explain how you get forms of Niborian theology that aren't, aren't true to sure. Niebuhr either. Because right, yeah. people who just don't even see the radical social gospel that's in Niebuhr well, that don't get it. Isn't there, um, I'm trying to remember, oh, back when McCain and Obama were running, they were both mm -hmm. asked their favorite theologian, and they both said Niebuhr, right. which made no sense to me. How can right. they both, I think yes. they don't understand him, or they, because right. uh, there were a bunch of books that came out that year, right, trying to explain the real Niebuhr or something, you know? Yes, well, Niebuhr, of course, he zigged and zagged in his politics. He basically changed his politics every 10 years. Uh, so you get different sort of tracks coming out of which of these uh, you are sort of lining out with and which, which Niebuhr is your favorite mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And so we all do this. Uh, however, I would say that there is a, a passion about social justice that informs all of Niebuhr's work that is, in drive, that is driving him. Mm -hmm. Even later on, yes, when he gives up on uh, democratic socialism and becomes very comfortable in the mainstream of the Democratic Party, that's because he thinks, well, you know, I just spent the entire 1930s ridiculing these New Dealers, but they turned out to be right. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, he kind of made his peace with, uh, with them uh, and then is, then is in the mainstream of the Democratic Party and so then you get generations of Niborians who just think well that's that's the that's essential the Reinhold Niebuhr and then and then some of them later on they end up uh, absolutizing or I would say kind of fossilizing the Niebuhr of about 1948 to 1954 when he is one of the iconic figures in the Cold War mm -hmm. helping to establish Cold War ideology uh, and especially for people in that group, people like Karl Meyer and Paul Ramsey and yeah. uh, Ernst yeah. Lefevre, that whole group that ended up being in the early generation of the neocons, you know, they could say, yeah, we're Niburians, and they were. I mean, they were in, in, in Ryanese inner circle. But those are all people who didn't get at all uh, that Reinhold Niebuhr was actually a radical social gospel. Yeah. And that Niebuhr is teaching in a field well, you know, when he came to Union, Niebuhr was teaching in a field that had no history or basis whatsoever, apart from the social gospel, which he knew. Um, he's just, and he, he's, he so takes it for granted that then he doesn't really talk about that. And so what he does talk about is the things that he's ridiculing the social gospel. So you get later generations, they, they, that's all they catch. That's all right. they get. And indeed, if you're not kind of versed in or steeped in what went before, um, you don't get that. I've always had this sort of ge kind of genealogical predisposition, you know, right. so I ended up treating this democratic socialist world that I came into pretty much the same way that I dealt with Christian theology. I mean, I hadn't grown up in, with Christianity either, but as soon as I came into it, I go, oh, what's the story here, you know? Where did these people come from? And where do these ideas <laughs> come from? from right? None of these ideas just, you know, all right, just changelessly true or came out of heaven or anything. They all have a history, so where did it come from? And um, so this, it's something, it's similar work going on in both contexts uh, for me. Just as when I joined DSOC, I, you know, early DSOC, I'm the generation of, of young people coming out of the new left who don't even want to know about Shackmanites or debates over Karl Marx or the like, but 
I, I have this bent that uh, no, I I I want to understand these old lefties in the organization. You know, sure. who is Harry Fleischman and how did he get that way? And Bogdan Denich and these people who are you know are, are friends, are leaders uh, in DSOC and and sort of tracing out the histories, even trying to understand Mike. Uh, all of that was you know was really prerequisite to getting uh, why Marx was so important to him. And and a, and a very similar thing. With the Christian side of it, okay. I mean, the Christian side of it means the social gospel, um, and so I ended up doing work on sort of teasing out the history and varieties of the social gospel um, that that drew me into uh, yes, scholarly activity that was not nobody I went to graduate school with, uh, you know, had any uh, notion about, uh, but which have been powerfully important um, for me and so uh, you know it, it was there I mean this the, the social gospel movement in a in a broad sense of the word socialist and in a broad sense of the term social gospel the entire social gospel movement is Christian socialist it's Christian. Uh, as it was in England as well yeah um, and uh, in England I mean this this is story goes back to the late 1840s with uh, F.D. Morris and uh, people like that. Um, so this is even before you have um, social democratic or Marxist parties that have identified socialism with centralizing the major means of industrial production or maybe all means of production uh, in a you know kind of centralized collectivism. I mean, here you've got earlier traditions of socialist witness and thought and organizing. Um, being reflected, where it's more communitarian or often sometimes anarchist, uh, you know, um, showing up. Uh, so that's there in, in the very earliest traditions of Christian socialism, at all uh, with more cooperativist or or what's later called syndicalist uh, forms. So that that is there in the in the whole English side. It's there. There's an argument about it in Germany too, although the German story is distinct. Um, and then with the U.S. Um, too, so there's a there's a there is a key divide here between the more radical wing of the of the social gospel that's explicitly socialist and knows why it's socialist and is not afraid of the name and is going to you know live and die right. uh, with it, and the more reformist wing uh, that is. Um, Got a careful relationship to socialism and wants. It's very careful to say which which one they're not, uh, and they're more reformist anyway. And they just don't even want to talk about class anyway. Oh, let's we if you know if we if we succeed, we can just get to something that's beyond the class struggle and just not. They just they're just squeamish about it because they're they're moralistic. So there is that divide in the first and second generation of the social gospel. However, having said that I even you know accentuate this in certain books um, it's important to say is that the whole thing even in this great bastion of capitalism right. even here the entire social gospel movement which transformed the churches in this country which was which really should be called the third great awakening uh, <laughs> the whole thing was Christian socialist because all of these social gospel theologians, I mean all of them, even the conservatives uh, who weren't, they all believe uh, that, that cooperatives are the ideal form uh, of organization, of, uh, of a firm. And they all are for public ownership of what they call natural monopolies. Hmm. Uh, 
And that starts with the railroads and the gas and water and the electrical and, and things like that. Uh, but then that becomes an increasingly longer list as you get, you know, into and then through the 1890s. And I'm, I'm still describing, you know, the conservative right, wing yeah, the, right, uh, here. So you have, you know, those two things together, uh, even on that side of the fence, even among people like Richard Ely and Washington Gladden, who are so concerned that you understand that they're not, they're not socialist, at least not a certain kind of socialist, right? Uh, and then the other, the other types, uh, Rauschenbusch, WDP Bliss, um, Vetus Gutter, Harry Ward, uh, people on that that wing of it, they are socialists in name and proud of it and think it's terribly important to, to get that across. So um, that, was my, that was my canon pretty early on. So do you, I, I've always kind of been curious about this of, um, in modern America now, you, you, you have the, the Sojourners Movement, Jim Wallace, but I've always thought that that group is afraid they, they seem to say they come out of the social gospel movement. And I think they do, but they also, is that a group that's kind of afraid to just say that, well, it's also socialist? Is it, is it afraid of that word? Or do you see the social gospel movement and religious socialism as something even different from that? Well, it delights me that Sojourners more and more sort of sure, claim yeah. that linkage. I mean, I wrote a lot of articles for Sojourners in the 80s, and I, I kept trying to tell them this is this is what right, you need to hook up with, it. right? Uh, because for them, this, this the story was always how is it that in the 19th century, Protestant evangelicalism was was abolitionist and it was yeah. uh, feminist, and you know it had these sort of radical currents. And yet, uh, those of us who founded Sojourners back when it was called Post-American, we all went to uh, evangelical seminaries where we all got stigmatized uh, because we were against the war, right? And that, that's what gave birth uh, to that whole community. And so early on, I mean, Donald Dayton gave them a historiography about how oh, there's, a, there's a more radical sort of stream of, of evangelicalism that then was betrayed uh, later on when the movement went turned fundamentalist and opted out from any kind of... Social justice struggle and was uh, was a, was post millennialist and adopted fundamentalist theology and so on. So we need to get back to that those sort of holiness or Methodist perfectionist traditions that were uh, that were certainly abolitionist and uh, and that and that were indeed hooking up with what became the social gospel. So uh, I was delighted uh, when they more and more sort of put their arms around uh, a good uh, part of this history. Um, Jim, I think Jim did an extraordinary thing yeah, sure, uh, with that organization. Uh, I, you know, was there uh, part of that time and certainly uh, wrote a lot uh, for the magazine. Um, there were a number of people who came into it who were, who were in fact, not evangelical, not self-identifying evangelicals okay. uh, through those years. And there would be periodically debates about should we just change our identity, you know, open this thing out because let's look around the room here. A lot of us didn't actually grow up in this and we don't we don't really identify with evangelicalism. We identify with Sojourners, right? right. And Jim would, you know, make, make this argument that no, no, we have a ministry to the evangelical community. Mm. That's where we came from. That's where Joe Roos and I started this thing. Uh, as a ministry uh, to uh, Protestant evangelicalism, that's still what we are. 
Uh, and he just kept watering that garden and for a while writing, oh, the same, you know, different versions of the same book for a while. And it, it grew. And I think uh, what he did there uh, was yeah, a tremendous right. thing. Um, but there, he's always had to walk a careful, sort of walk a tightrope uh, here with uh, wanting to protect uh, that identity. Uh, Jim certainly knows that m most of the people who go to the you know, Evangelical Theological Society do not consider him an evangelical. Sure. Uh, in fact, they only have one doctrinal claim, you know, that qualifies you for right. ETS, and that's that's inerrancy theory, right? right? So, well, no, by definition, he's not an evangelical uh, to them. Uh, well, that one he just had to, you know, deal with. Um, but they, with issues with regard to sexuality and the like, have always been um, difficult. Yeah on the Sojourners community uh, uh, with regard uh, to this, and also with regard to uh, laying claim to some of the sort of Christian socialism that actually does, is in the social gospel, uh, also a certain uh, wariness there. And so, actually, he is much like, I mean, m m most of the Sojourners community, and certainly the magazine over the years, I think, has been like the Richard Ely, Washington Gladden, uh, Jane Addams sort of wing of the social gospel that was um, by its own light sort of pragmatic and not so ideological and we don't want to get over identified with some ideology that is mm. confining and yeah. uh, that over defines even how we understand the gospel that we need to be a little more loose and pragmatic uh, uh, about this and just even how we talk about it uh, but of course that argument has got you know that doesn't just go there as well. Uh, you you can be a fully full orbed Christian socialist and uh, still uh, believe that, as as William Temple did. Uh, you know, as I do. What needs to happen to religious socialism in the future? I mean, you ma you made a comment a little bit earlier that you were worried that some of the social gospel stuff from Roush and Bush had kind of died out. Uh, I I mean, I think it's. Like you said, some people have betrayed it. Mm -hmm. uh, what what needs to happen next? Because it seems like uh, people are interested in this again. I don't think they know what to do with it. But I've noticed, you know, you I sometimes walk around Yale Divinity School and people have those books, you know, in, in hand. They're 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 very curious about this stuff. Um, so what what's what's next? If you could, if you could have it any way you wanted, what what would, right. what would happen next? Yes, I think it is happening. It is coming back um, now um, in a way that's distinct in my whole career. Really, I mean, I've been, I've been in whatever whatever is going on. I've been in it uh, uh, all along and calling for um, movements to uh, um, recover um, some of this uh, story to re re sort of revisit. Um, some of these dreams about democratizing the economy and even re reappropriating the language of the cooperative commonwealth uh, and the like. Um, and um, depending on where I was in the country, I, I spent 18 years in southwest Michigan where mm -hmm. there, and just the language of socialism was just, it was just harder to speak. And this is after years of being you know, lead founding and leading, uh, you know, DSA 
uh, locals, I just had to, you know, recalibrate what activism was going to mean mm-hmm. for me here. I mean, yeah. it, he, where I was here, it had to be in the peace movement and in community organizing, uh, because that's where right. there were organizations that we built that really got some traction or the like, but to try to talk about socialism uh, in those contexts um, just got in the way of what, you know, organizing we we could do. And some of those, some of the most some of the most uh, vibrant, energizing, powerful, you know, activist uh, organizing I've ever ever been involved in. But it was, it was, it was not this. Right? Mm. Um, and meanwhile, I keep writing books about this, but uh, you know, where it needs to go. Uh, but uh, there was a period there, you know, a few months before we invaded Iraq, where I turned all my talks into anti-war talks and that just just took over my life for two or three years well that's that's what needed to happen uh, there um, I felt um, a, a certain turn uh, occurring here um, certainly by Occupy it's just undeniable mm-hmm. uh, that 40 years of flat wages and um, and a you know, successive generations that now no longer expect to live as well or better than their parents, and people coming out of school with debt up to their up to their eyeballs and can't find a starter job, uh, and and just realizing that this economy is rigged and it doesn't work for us, and uh, and yet look at all these people just making out just fabulously well. I mean, this is just incredibly fabulously wealthy country, except that. All, all the uh, economic gain going to people at the very top, as that story just becomes known and just undeniable, I think, to people o- over over a time, I, c- I could just feel it uh, swinging uh, back in this direction. Just even when I'm out on the speaking trail talking about other things, I could see a kind of swing back toward uh, economic justice issues that I, for much of my career, I felt were kind of my almost personal hobby horse, you know, or something that I was, uh, that I was uh, attached to and been, uh, cared about and writing about, you know, my whole career. But, um, there were phases of my career where I wrote about other things just, just to make, just to have other things to talk about, you know, (laughs) I don't want to just talk on a wall about, uh, you know, yet another book about Christian socialism or the like. Sure, yeah. Uh, And then, of course, also, you're also looking to sort of make connections with what else is going on, you know, uh, in your time. But I've, in recent years, I just find myself having to do less and less translating, as we used to call it. Really? Okay. from whatever's going on in, uh, you know, cultural theory or, mo- or even you know, theories of movement organizing and the like, uh, what's going on in community organizing since I've been involved in that for you know over mm-hmm. 30 years, uh, watched it move more toward um, uh, the the very issues that got where I this I, where I feel like this is where I came in, you know, okay. with um, talking about being able to talk about economic democracy and what it, what it would mean. Uh, to extend the democratic process into uh, in, into firms, uh, into being even being able to talk about uh, the process of investment being such a crucial variable that those who control the means and terms and and direction of credit play an enormous role in simply determining the kind of society that the rest of us just end up living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in I've, 
earlier times of my career, you know, people just quickly, you know, would slap a label on the, oh, that's Marxist, you know, yeah, that's, right. we're done with that, you know, uh, and all oh, that didn't work or, you know, uh, the like. And I think that, that kind of argument now kind of resonates with a broader swath of the American population than at any time. Uh, in my career, is it the is it because of being removed from the Cold War? Do you think, or just that? Because it seems like I, when, when I've taught undergraduate students, they don't know what that was. They they've heard about it, but they don't associate Stalinism with socialism, or they don't associate even Marxism with with necessarily Soviet communism. Do you think it's just been the time has changed? Yes, now we're in a pedagogical uh, phase in which we have to explain what the Cold War was, Cold right? War. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you have to work pretty hard at just sort of explaining that this is the blight over right. your entire consciousness. <laughs> that the whole world, the whole planet has been divided two ways. And, right. <laughs> and it's either or, and, and the, all these other issues don't really matter. What matters is how you line up uh, on this uh, and uh, yes, we have a story to tell about something called democratic socialism that isn't lined up with, with that uh, story, but then you have to explain that, yeah, there's there's some other kind, some kind you never heard of and wouldn't have thought of and just wouldn't expect, and, and that is counterintuitive for you because, you know, this great dread of... Uh, of this perverted kind of uh, socialism. And, and frankly, even there, uh, for years, I just thought, well, I might as well just take this on. Uh, and he, that even became a, 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 a moment pedagogically where I'd explained actually these um, currents of democratic socialism that right. yes to which I am attached and, and write about uh, they were writing about what is wrong with communism in the 1920s and the 1930s exactly. right. uh, this is that, in yeah. fact where m most of the infrastructure and certainly language about anti-communism that others ended up inheriting in this country it all it all came out of the old left yeah uh because he, here everything was at stake for these old left socialists and saying no we're not communists in fact we need to uh, make sure we don't have communists infiltrating our organizations and taking them over and taking over the unions uh, and the like. So for better and for worse, I mean, this this issue was, in fact, all over uh, of uh, democratic socialism and had had, you know, had struggled with it uh, all through its history uh, in this country. And and for better or worse, it's certainly democratic socialism is not no. <laughs> is not hooked up with that. Uh, in fact, uh, it's it says it as emphatically as as you could get in English uh, that that whole third international uh, sort of Leninist uh, strain of communism is a perversion from the get-go yeah. about the sort of democratic orientation of uh, as means and end of democratic socialism that we shouldn't even have to say democratic socialism uh, except that the thing was perverted by uh, these other movements, um, but um, yes, there does come a point when uh, if you're standing in front of, as I was at a college teaching 19 and 20 year olds, yeah. um, you don't even have to tell this story anymore because they don't even know that you know what the Cold War uh, was, and that uh, did sort of lessen the pressure of right. of all the fallout. Uh, uh, from that uh, issue, although I think if you, I think if you are teaching this subject rightly, you do need to. Go, you you got to go into yeah. it. Um, 
you can't understand what neoconservatism is either if you don't no. know this either. So same thing there. So um, let me change this to a topic on race. Okay. Is that okay? Good. Okay. Um, it's, we were talking about this earlier before starting mm -hmm. this process of, um, is that the issue, do you think, of our time, of trying to, 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 to work out all the stuff we're seeing with police violence? Of, uh, I mean, I, I'm asking this thinking of, thinking of our previous discussion about um, the Cold War and things is, I, I have just been blown away by Here's Bernie Sanders running around saying democratic socialism all the time and using the S word all the time. It's not a big deal. And Obama, who isn't, in my opinion, a socialist, has been branded that. Sure. And it was, you know, that's all we've heard is this Marxist socialist. And, you know, you, you do start to wonder after a while, is it because Bernie's white? Obama isn't. It, it just seems that these are... The times that we live in, that 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 race is just becoming the issue again. Is that something you see as as this is what Christianity is going to have to? Is is that the next thing it's going to have to help with, to deal with, to reconcile with, or if you? I I know it's a big topic, but I just you know I think it's worth saying something about it because I I think people sometimes probably wonder. What is democratic socialism? What's it going to do in terms of racism? What's Christian socialism going to do in terms of racism? Uh, I don't think a lot of people know the history of Christian socialists being abolitionists or even evangelicals being abolitionists. So if I, I just was kind of curious to know what you think on this. Thanks. I view U.S. American history primarily through the lens of 246 years of shadow slavery okay. and 100 years of segregation. Um, and then that leading to a civil rights movement, which is, um, which was the basis for what became uh, my joining a church in my late twenties, and then even much later in my mid thirties, uh, starting an academic career. Um, so it is my sort of primary lens, anyway. I do believe that fundamental issues about how this country is infected by an original sin that is just always there and that in our politics we find different ways of covering it up and claiming it's not there and the like um, is to me uh, the, the a fundamental um, issue and um, and it's self-conscious for me, even in a way that, for example, the, a similar narrative with regard to Native Americans is not sure. the case, even though, you know, that's part of my own family tree, uh, is Native American. I have come quite late even dealing with that uh, at all, sort of learning the history of that uh, or the like. But uh, from as early as I have, thoughts about a world and just what kind of country uh, that I am in, uh, the, this, this history of, um, of uh, enslavement and uh, dragging um, people here from Africa and them building this country uh, and, and the like and how that affects our political history and the like, uh, for me has been really the issue um, all along. Um, and this work I'm currently doing now, writing these, these two huge volumes on the black social gospel, 
um, is the fruit of it. Um, I've been aware for a long time uh, that there is a there is a black church version of of the white social gospel that is that is in this white social gospel narrative, but but also outside of it, and that most of it is outside within black churches and in uh, the publications of uh, um, denominations and in Crisis Magazine and in the black press uh, and so on. That was terribly important that you really don't get to Martin Luther King without it because Martin Luther King did not come from nowhere. Um, and yet no one had ever sort of written out this sort of story of the, of the black social gospel, you know, per se. Uh, parts of it, you know, are known because they show up in other ways of sort of telling the story that makes, you know, sense according to some other uh, telling. But when you don't ask, well, what if, if King was a black social gospeler, which, you know, no one really disputes that, well, no. then, <laughs> then what, you know, what's the pre-story behind that? And for a long time, even when I was in school, nobody talked about Benjamin Mays. Mays was forgotten. Um, now, Mays gets recovered a little bit, you know, uh, later on, uh, but that there's a whole sort of train uh, of, figure, of figures of Reverdy Ransom and Richard Wright Jr. and, and Alexander Walters and uh, Mordecai Johnson leading to Benjamin Mays and Howard Thurman and the like, the people who were uh, King's uh, own mentors. Um, that uh, whole line uh, of uh, figures uh, I think has um, is has the most important sort of legacy of any um, religious tradition in the entire country. Mm. Um, but here I've got the same problem that Rauschenbusch had when he's writing about the social gospel, right? right? That if that's the case, then how is it that you know we've not heard heard it named or said yeah. uh, up till now? Now one of my arguments about you know, about this is that as soon as you name it, then you need to sort of dig for figures who are in fact there. I mean, it's not that hard because yeah. uh, they did write for national publications. Uh, they were quite well known uh, within a black church world and some of them were even known within, you know, the white ecumenical, white Protestant world because they're the representative of the AME or AME Zion or National Baptist Convention in the Federal Council of Churches and they're uh, later, you know, Mays is a vice president of the National Council of Churches and so on. So here they were, they were in that very uh, story of uh, social Christianity, but yet keep getting screened out uh, from its telling such that you had, um, you know, many years of historiography about the historiography about the, about the social gospel that said it wasn't concerned with racial justice, right? None of these social gospelers cared about it. Uh, well, the truth about that is way more complicated, as it almost always is when you finally privilege racial oppression as a category of analysis, you know, in this country. When you simply ask the question, well, where was it? How is it being covered up? Or how, what role was racial oppression playing uh, in this church world, you know, during that period? And if you just go after it, you will find it. Okay. Um, and then it changes how you understand you know what was going on in, in that time and that is true for every uh, era uh, right now teaching uh, the uh, my book the new abolition in a, with a course in with a, a group uh, here at Union and uh, 
and what gets said, you know, every week in class is someone raises their hand and says, well, that's, this is just like today, isn't it, mm. you know? I, can't, I didn't know about what was going on in the 19-teens or then the following week, the 1920s, and next week, the 1930s. I, I didn't know this history you're recounting, you know? I'm, you know, it, I'm glad to be learning it, but what's just blowing me away is just how this is just like what we're dealing with right now. Um, and I just say, yes, it is. <clears throat> So is there any hope if it's the same? Or if it sounds similar, is, is there hope somewhere? Well, I think, you know, we have now, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has learned uh, lessons from this history that I'm uh, recounting, that it's, it, it's important to know about sort of where the civil rights movement uh, came from. This same time, it was a very much a church oriented church-based uh, movement, certainly the Southern Leadership, uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, is overwhelmingly directed by uh, Southern Black Baptist preachers mm -hmm. uh, and who've got a particular way of organizing and of performing uh, and they do put down the women uh, who are doing a lot of the work and they've got a rather dramatic way of thinking about political change and how you, you know, do actions and how you organize. Um, and that, that organization is great for bringing Birmingham, Alabama to its knees for a couple of months or Selma uh, later on. I mean, they, they were a kind of fire alarm outfit that, that did a certain kind of, of uh, intervention. Uh, so I think I think it's terribly important to learn all that we can from about how previous movements worked and why they worked uh, when they did and how they worked, you know, when they did. Um, but also we have a critique uh, of the the sort of the the male-dominated, uh, in some ways too churchly uh, sort of leadership uh, of that model. I think we have a whole generation uh, of uh, young. Uh, figures in the movement today who don't want to replicate mm. uh, that model. Um, and I, 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 but I would not say, oh, that, yes, that's the answer. We just need to go with some kind of uh, totally decentralized, we don't have leaders um, uh, kind of organizing uh, either. I, I, am, I am a check all the boxes, you know, appreciate, you know, uh, the people who've kept organizations going all these years. Uh, for example, the work of community organizing for the for the past uh, 40 years, there are groups like Gamaliel and and uh, Pico uh, and others that have that have uh, been doing hardcore decentralized uh, work uh, in community organizing that has got a strong sort of critique of racial justice, mm -hmm. uh, racial injustice, uh, all along. Pico is thriving. Um, today, uh, and Pico's an outfit that was founded in 1972. So it's not that, oh, we're just having to, you know, reinvent, uh, you know, movement organ organizing. Um, here in New York, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter has had a, an enormous sort of impact on changing how we sort of talk about organizing and, and uh, how it occurs and the like. Uh, but if you, you show up for uh, demonstrations here, you're also bumping up with groups that have been have been out there for many, many years, you know, who've been doing this kind of work for a long time. Um, and I think there's a kind of synthesis, a merger uh, of the generations that needs to occur and is happening um, 
out there. You've been listening to an interview with Professor Gary Dorian of Union Theological Seminary. Professor Dorian's most recent book is The New Abolition, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Religion and Socialism, a podcast of the Religion and Socialism Commission of the Democratic Socialists of America. You'll find links and other information online at religioussocialism.org. For more information about the Democratic Socialists of America, visit dsausa.org. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at iTunes or find us on SoundCloud. Our podcast theme music is from bensound.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.